and welcome to Handed Down, where we celebrate traditional songs and the people who sing them. Today's guest is a recently retired linguistics lecturer and an active folk musician. He's combined these interests with his scholarly work, co-authoring a recent book about the sociolinguistics of folk performance and a number of papers in scholarly journals. He's also a storyteller, a songwriter and a playwright, and he teaches poetry writing and creativity, and uh, rather bravely, I think, did a TED Talk on creativity for academics. Franz Andres Morrissey, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, And thank you for giving me such a wonderful introduction. Well, you're very welcome. And you made it really easy by having lots of interesting things on the internet. <laughs> Where are you joining us from today? I live in a tiny little village about 15 kilometres outside Bern in the Swiss countryside, fairly close to the language border with uh, the the French-speaking part. So if you travel another 10 kilometres from here, you're actually surrounded by people who speak speak only or almost only French. They might have learned German at school, but they don't really particularly like speaking it. One of the few places where you have absolutely lousy mobile uh, mobile reception, that tells you a little bit about (laughs) about what the place is like and uh, one of the lovely things about it is that uh, uh, it's fairly isolated so playing music in the middle of the night is not going to disturb anyone. (laughs) That sounds idyllic. So shall we start by talking about today's song it's the ballad Brown Adam. It's a big old ballad and it has a number of really interesting features that we were talking about just before the recording. Can you tell us about that? It has these sort of different speeds of narrative Francis Goumer, who was a student of Childs, described this as leaping and lingering. Uh, leaping would be the, the story that sort of happens very quickly. And then you have these rather detailed uh, elements, which he describes as lingering with dialogue between the characters. And you have that, of course, in, in, um, in Brown Adam, because there is that part where his love meets up with it, with this false knight and the false knight sort of first tries to seduce her and then threatens her and this happens in this particularly typical style of uh you know the the, the ballad narrative which is essentially dramatic it's he has at least two lines of verse or or the whole verse his part of what he says to her and then her response to him it's very rarely one line it's usually two and very often four lines and that whole thing works with repetition. So, you know, you repeat essentially exactly the same thing and it leads to to a kind of climax. Again, Goumer calls this incremental repetition. The repetition is the same, but it leads to, to the crunch. And the crunch in Brown Adam, of course, is that um, rather than sort of trying to uh, buy her, he threatens to kill her. And uh, that's when, again, rather laconically, at the end, he the, this false knight is, is punished for what he does. What is also interesting is that in some ways it's untypical because the opening two stanzas are uh, spoken, I would imagine, from the point of view of the lady who describes how beautiful he is. And normally uh, descriptive passages like that don't, happen in folk literature 
because folk literature works so strongly with with stereotypes or with with archetypes, perhaps a, a bit less uh, negatively put. And that you know that those opening two lines where she praises his beauty and how much he means to her that is relatively unusual. And then it becomes quite normal in the sense that it just says, well, you know, he's banished. It's never really explicitly stated what he's banished for. He's a blacksmith and she's a lady, probably. Uh, that's the, the reason why he was banished. You know, he uh, transcended or tried to transcend class boundaries or something. There's so much in this song, isn't there? But I, I really like what you say about the repetition. That really stood out to me. It reminded me of, um, it, it felt like reading a fairy tale. Yeah, but I mean, you know, this whole repetition thing, uh, if you think of uh, the fairy tale Mr. Fox, you know, uh, has exactly that. And it, it's also this, uh, it, it also has this uh, idea of incremental repetition because mm. it leads up to, you know, the moment when, all is revealed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess there's some wonderful, um, I guess you would call them folklore motifs, wouldn't you? There's a there's a false knight. There's um, a shooting a lot of birds. Now, I did wonder if there was maybe a euphemism in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the bower in the greenwood, you know. A, a, how often do we come across a bower in a greenwood in real life and how frequently do they crop up in balladry, you know, <laughs> so... <laughs> ballads have got all the best places haven't they oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i also really like the fact that the false knight the false knight um she he gets watered she wasn't having any of it when you think about uh you know what i what i said about the laconic style the ending which essentially renders this knight incapable of fighting mm. because if you lose three fingers from your right hand there is no way you can hold uh you can hold a sword or you can hold a bow and arrow you know you are incapacitated as far as fighting is concerned it made him leave a better pledge three fingers from his right hand that's all that you know that's the battle May the moon's silver light banish your dark dreams and fears. May the path rise to your footsteps as you travel through the land. And may God hold you forever in the palm of her hand. Brown Adam is uh, is one of the uh, songs in the Child Ballad Collection. It is a one-off, uh, not just in terms of uh, the story it tells, but also in terms of the music. Now, perhaps that I need to sort of like give a little bit of background about the music. I was I was at a, a song workshop, a ballad workshop, in Stones Barn in Cumbria with uh, Martin Carthy, Rick Kemp and Maddie Pryor uh, in 2014. And I was trying to find out what the tunes were to some of the those traditional ballads, because of course, Child did not provide any tunes. And I found that there was a book by an American musicologist uh, called Bertram Harris Bronson. He collected as many tunes as he could for 
all those 300 plus uh, songs that are in in the child collection and i found that brown adam had just the one tune it's rather unusual in terms of the fact that there's only one text to my knowledge and there's only one tune and uh, it was supplied by anna gordon or anna gordon brown uh, or mrs brown of falkland as she's popularly known who was one of the greatest contributors to a whole range of collections of folk ballads and uh i sort of got interested in anna gordon brown and yeah that sort of ballooned yes anna gordon brown i've only just scratched the surface really but she seems to have been well quite a character for a start but she seems to have played quite a major role as well in bringing together just a whole bunch of songs that no one else had she was born and grew up in uh, Aberdeen. Her father was uh, Thomas Gordon, the professor of humanities at King's College in Aberdeen. And he was also a member of the Aberdeen Musical Society. Although uh, Anna Gordon was definitely incredibly musically gifted, because she was a woman, she couldn't get membership of the Aberdeen Musical Society. And she was also very smart, but she couldn't study. And uh, she eventually married Reverend Brown and travelled, or rather relocated from Aberdeen to Falkland. And over that period, she changed from Aberdonian English, or Aberdonian Scots rather, to uh, a more, I wouldn't say it was Fife Scots, but it was a more sort of levelled Scots, and you can hear that, or you can see that in the later in the later ballads that uh, were recorded of hers. And uh, so, from that point of view, she's quite interesting. But also because she contributed something like thirty ballads to the child collection, which basically makes up for about well ten percent of the the stuff that's in there. And she learnt all the, these from her mother, from her aunt. Lilius, and typically for the time, from a scullery maid or a nursemaid, uh, who remains nameless. But she learned all these before she was 12. And she had this phenomenal memory for, you know, for ballads and songs, and she kept them alive until she died, which was uh, in 1810. Just a really interesting character. And given the fact that a child was, was really interested in traditional material, uh, and always sort of split things up into A, B, C and up, up to E type materials for each one of the ballads. Uh, she contributed a, a very, very large number of the A ballads. I don't think all 30 are A ballads, but uh, the A ballads were, in child's view, were the most authentic and the most beautiful and the most worthy of curation, shall we say. Mm. And I, I suppose in a way she was a collector in her own right, uh, even as a child, and then just kept them in her memory. That's right. And, and uh, she, was, she was sort of contacted by a whole number of people um, who, who were into this sort of thing, contributed to the collections of Heard, of Jameson, of Scott, you know, Walter Scott, Kinloch, Motherwell, Buchan. Uh, you know, she was, she was a, real, a really, really important source for basically for balladry in general. To the point, because, I mean, Child never actually put together a, a, a poetics of the ballad. Um, he just collected them and ordered them 
in the way in which he thought that the most noteworthy stuff came first and the least noteworthy stuff has high numbers because they were broadside ballots and they were rubbish as far as he was concerned. Uh, the ones that he, certainly the ones that he didn't put in, the ones that he did put in, uh, the broadsides he, he felt had some merit. But one can generally say that the lower the child ballot number, the, the more, uh, the higher it was in his esteem. In that sense, uh, he, by adopting so many of her ballots, he kind of created by implication a poetics of the ballad, which was very, very strongly influenced by 18th century ballad tradition in Scotland. So I think to a large degree, what we nowadays sort of see as, as classics amongst the ballads is essentially very, very largely 18th century material and very largely actually influenced by the singing of uh, Anna Gordon Brown. One of the things that one needs to be aware of is that all these songs travelled. Something that she might have picked up could have originally come from England. And of course, it went the other way around as well. You know, if you look at uh, all the various versions of Geordie, for instance, or Georgie, all the way to Joan Byers, you, you realise how, how these songs have travelled in the case of Cecil Sharp and Maud Carpellis and those kind of people who then actually went and, and tried to find ballads or songs like that in the, in the American Appalachies. So, you know, that kind of journey that went from, in many cases, from Scotland to Northern Ireland, from Northern Ireland to the US, uh, sort of shows that these, these ballads are actually really traveling material in, in many ways. Yes. And we've already looked on the show at a couple of ballads that did just that. So Barbara Allen and Pretty Sarah, both of which crossed over the Atlantic very successfully. It's funny you should mention uh, Barbara Allen because uh, most of the, the, the versions that we have of Barbara Allen are the ones that that were sung by Joan Bias and I think Jean Ritchie. And it's all the same tune. But if you look at the Bronson collection, he collected something like 148 different tunes for Barbara Allen. It was such a treasure of a book to find. And he, he starts out, and uh, that's a sort of like a hidden kick, I think, against Francis James Child. There are four volumes, and the first volume starts with the, fo the foreword with, when is a ballad not a ballad? When it doesn't have a tune. <laughs> <laughs> but does it have to have its own tune, or can it borrow one from somewhere else? Because there was quite a lot of tune swapping going on, wasn't there? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I, I was always wondering where Martin Carthy got all his tunes from. And he, he said at one stage that uh, he actually goes to Scotland uh, to pipe, you know, sh uh, shops that have pipe music and checks out the pipe tunes and then uses them as, as tunes for his for some of the ballads that he likes to do. If you look at um, Biker Hill and Elsie uh, Marley, you find that both of these songs actually swap whole verses and because, of course, the, the, the meter is actually fairly predictable with folk songs. It tends to be sort of four stress syllables in the odd lines and three stress syllables in the even lines. A transfer from one tune to another is, is a piece of cake. Yeah, and I know that everyone now is doing exactly what I'm doing, which is going through every tune that they know in their head and seeing if it fits that pattern. 
it's, it's actually interesting that because the pattern is is fairly predictable and and um if you look at the rhyme of the ancient mariner that it follows exactly that pattern but uh walter scott uh who was you know who was very intent on the literary qualities of the ballad he he like like child he didn't care about the music uh, he felt that if he came across a ballad that didn't fit that pattern uh he would rewrite it and i think it was clark saunders that he picked which in fact didn't follow that pattern it was uh, it had four stressed syllables in in all the lines and he changed it to 4343 and the the result was that the tune that it came with was no longer singable so he broke the ballad essentially essentially yeah yeah because he he was so obsessed with this 4343 thing Language, the singer and the song refers to roughly, I think, about 150 songs in all. And in order for people who who would like to read it to have an idea uh, what these songs are like, what uh, we ended up doing, uh, Dick Watts and I, was to sort of try and find uh, on YouTube uh, or anywhere else on the internet uh, links to the songs. And there were a whole number of songs that we didn't find. And Brown Adam was one of them. So we actually ended up recording a certain number of them uh, for the companion website. I think Dick sort of said he didn't really know how to, what to do with that particular song. So I thought, I'll give it a go. And it sort of ballooned because it's quite a long song. And in order for it to become accessible to a 20th or 21st century audience, uh, I sort of took a leaf out of Steel Ice Band's book when they did King Henry, which is quite a long ballad as well. But what they did was they sort of split it up into various bits uh, with different types of instrumentation to sort of make kind of like a mini opera out of it. And I thought, yeah, that, that could work. And so I split the song up into various parts that seemed to have some kind of a cohesion and arranged the, the, the music uh, accordingly and it sort of ballooned. It took me about three days to record it. And my poor wife, Caroline, she was in the in the study next to mine. She uh, listened to me doing this song for three days. And she point blank has refused so far to listen to the final mix. So <laughs> she, 
She's never actually heard what it turned out to be. <laughs> oh, no, poor Caroline. Um, it just makes me realise, though, what a fantastic bargain your book is because you get access to all those songs as well. So we'll definitely be putting a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, the the original uh, hardback was was ludicrously expensive at ninety five pounds, but uh, the, the the paperback is is much more reasonably priced. Can I ask you about your journey into folk music? So I always like to ask guests this question, but where did it all start for you? When did you first start to get interested in folk music? I think it started because as a as a very young teenager, sort of about 13, I'd always, even as a kid, uh, had been interested in, in, uh, in music because we didn't have a telly. And so I, I listened to the radio quite a bit. And I think when I was eight, or nine, uh, my grandmother sort of uh, asked what I wanted for my birthday. So I asked her for a Beatle record and she went to, I mean, this is Switzerland, right? She went to uh, the, the record shop in her small provincial town and they thought Beatle is just people with long hair. And so she came away with a Hollies record, uh, Stop, Stop, Stop. I was in primary school, but I was totally besotted with music. And um, so eventually my mum said, would you like to to learn to play the guitar? And I said, yeah. So I did. And uh, when I was a young teenager, I realised that uh, I was no Richie Blackmore because everybody was into Deep Purple at the time. And so I sold the uh, electric guitar that I had just bought uh, uh, for, you know, with months and months of saved up money and bought an acoustic. And uh, that was largely because I heard an album by Donovan. And I thought, this is great. I love acoustic guitar. That sounds really lovely. And then a friend of mine um, sort of got me hooked on uh, the Dubliners. And from the Dubliners, I went on to Planksty and uh, Irish music. There's always been a great interest in Irish music in Switzerland. And then I sort of got into English music, uh, English and Scottish music. And uh, there's, there's something wonderfully timeless about it all and that's what I love about it I think yeah you know I think it's really interesting that Donovan was your your gateway drug into folk yeah. music as it were <laughs> <laughs> uh, it has to be said that it was before he went psychedelic yeah it was you know th things like catch the wind and um yeah. uh colors and universal soldier and uh, Josie and you know all the all the the, the, the sort of stuff where he, they they called him the, the British Bob Dylan and he said no I'm the Scottish Woody Guthrie and I thought I didn't know that at the time but I think that's a wonderful way of <laughs> deflecting that oh you're just the British Bob Dylan <laughs> and you're in a band as well aren't you called uh, Taradiddle that's right yeah yeah uh, that started about five years ago together with um, a couple, married couple, Stephen Ferron, who uh, used to be a country and Americana musician. He, he was also a session musician in, in Nashville. And he uh, first came to Germany with a band uh, and then uh, moved to Switzerland where he met his, his, his wife, Mo. And between the three of us, we're taradiddling. The sort of main focus is, is three-part harmonies. 
And uh, uh, for me, it's a dream come true because I I love the sound of the human voice. And with those two, it's just it's just a sheer Martin pleasure. Martin said to his man, "Fine man, fine." Martin said to his man, "Who's the fool now?" Martin said to his man, "Fill thou the cup and I the can." Thou hast well drunken man. Who's the fool now? I think you've got an album coming out soon. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that was really exciting. We recorded it at Red Kite Studio in Central Wales, near Llandovery, and uh, we had some of the most amazing musicians on there: Jesse May from Steel Ice Band. Tim Harris and uh, James McIntosh from the Transatlantic Sessions. I mean, it was just, I sort of, I, I sort of sat along these people and thinking, but it's only me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it sounds like a really lovely album and we assume that it's going to come out at the beginning of, of the autumn. That's wonderful. And where can people get that from? Do you know, at the moment, we're still debating whether we're going to put it out. Uh, Red Kite apparently have their own label, so that would be great. But we're also somehow um, wondering whether we should try and uh, find a label here in Switzerland or to sell it, uh, you know, ourselves. I'm really curious to know what the folk scene is like in Switzerland. Oof. (laughs) That's an interesting question. There's a lot of singer-songwriter stuff happening uh relatively little traditional from about 69 to about 74 there was a a fairly lively swiss folk scene in fact dick watts who who uh is the main author of the language the singer and the song he was one of the figureheads of the swiss folk scene uh he came from britain and uh even in those days sort of felt that perhaps there was more of a a future outside the uk for him and he he uh, started the folk club in zurich and then a number of other folk clubs came along and they all sort of folded round about 75 and i think one of the reasons why uh, one of the reasons why they folded was because um they started adopting uh, not explicitly but kind of started adopting the um, McCall policy that you know you could only creditably do uh, folk songs in your own tradition. Mm. Unlike Britain, which, you know, has a a whole library of music, there are something like, I would say, about five or six collections in the Swiss canon that are of any interest. And what effectively happened was that everybody played the same 25 to 30 songs because those were the only ones that sort of seemed to be interesting and had some kind of social or social critical content so uh, the the folk scene basically disappeared up its own backside because it got so incredibly boring and then uh, you had punk come in and they basically preempted the you know they took over the amateurish musicianship on the one hand, uh, and the social comment on the other, except that they make it, they made it much more immediate and much more relevant uh, for the kids of the day. And I think that sort of killed it. But there are still folkies around. They tend to be ancient people like myself, mm-hmm. or uh, young singer songwriters. So a lot of acoustic music that's happening. 
I'm always sort of slightly dismayed when I listen to Brits sort of complaining about how their folk scene has deteriorated. You've still got one. <laughs> you've got festivals, you've got clubs, you've got, you know, you've got singers nights, all that kind of stuff that died in, in the mid 70s, actually. Yeah, it is pretty lively in the UK at the moment. I mean, I remember the 80s when you couldn't find folk music here nor there. It was just deeply uncool. Um, of course, there was no internet then, so perhaps we just didn't know what was going on. But but tell me a bit more about this very small body of Swiss folk music. Is that still sung or has it died away? I think it has, uh, to, a, to a large degree, died away. I came across uh, an album recently uh, which had been done by a fairly experimental musician and that was very daring. One or two songs have made it into into the pop repertoire of some of the uh, of some Swiss bands because they were done by one of the Swiss pop greats, a man called Paulo Hoffer. He recorded this uh, with a number of different people. Uh, this song, and it's a brilliant song. It's really beautiful, and that's probably the only one that uh, that's still around. And a lot of people don't actually realise that it is a, a, a traditional. There are some interesting songs. What what I think is interesting about Switzerland, though, is, of course, it's it's a multilingual country. You have a French-Swiss uh, tradition, you have an Italian-Swiss tradition, and that's quite lively, actually. And you have, of course, the German-speaking Swiss tradition, and you have the Romance tradition, and that is also surprisingly lively. Given the fact that there are only about 60,000 Romance speakers left, you know, it's a bit like, it's a bit like Gallic and... Uh, but... I think when a, a language reaches that kind of critical size, uh, you know, what you can hang on to it in terms of folklore, in terms of tradition, in terms of what is or used to be part of the folk uh, culture, then a special effort is made to retain that. At what point in your academic career did your love of folk music come together with your research interests? Is that something that was there from the start or is it something that you just kind of picked up along the way? No, no, it was ridiculously late. It was almost a last effort because uh, I, I was employed uh, primarily as a, as a teacher, not, not necessarily as a researcher. And uh, Dick uh, Watts was my, was my boss. We met uh, in the day, in the heady days of the Swiss folk scene during the the big festival uh, on Lenzburg, uh, with castle, uh, beautiful setting for for music, and uh, he never let me forget that I sort of walked up to him, you know, starry eyed, and said, "Are you Dick Watts?" <laughs> 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 but we ended up uh, playing music together for many many years, and and he kept on sort of going on, "Come on, let's write this book," and blah blah blah, and I really didn't fancy it. Even though I taught academic writing, I hated all this kind of rubbish of having to have a bibliography and everything that you say has to be referenced and blah de blah de blah. And then once I got into it, um, I sort of suddenly thought, "Hey, this is sexy. I could, I could really, I could really sort of lose myself in that." And uh, yeah, I, I'm, it, it was kind of very late in the day. I, I suppose if I had done it earlier, perhaps I, you know, could have made a name for myself at some stage. But then on the other hand, who cares? Essentially, what is fun about music is is singing, is doing it together, is, is to, you know, bond communities. And I think, I mean, that's one of the quintessences of the book. It's, it's, it's about making communities happen. But um, for that, you don't necessarily need to have a, 
a Cambridge University Press stamp of approval. I mean, I, I still have very, very fond memories of, of the, the, the song that you and I did together, or but the, t- the two songs that you and I did together without actually having ever met in person. <laughs> Thus every kind that pleasure finds The savage and the tender For me, the, the the pandemic was was absolutely fascinating. How the barnstoners and how you know these collaborations happened uh, with people who who were physically, you know, hundreds of miles apart, and and uh, the the also the again the sense of community uh, through the music and through sharing songs with each other. That was that was just absolutely wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was. And it was it was quite a lifeline for me, actually, quite life changing in the sense that I probably would have never started recording again without that and definitely wouldn't have started this podcast. So I think it was a it was a difficult time, but some amazing things came out of it because of that community. Um, So we were going to talk about your play as well, because you're just about to be in a play called Journeys of Slavery and you're doing the music for it. Do you want to tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, uh, this is uh, uh, this came about out of uh, a project that I did uh, with the um, choir of University of Bern, and they had decided they were going to do some uh, some music that was Shakespeare related. Uh, you know, which included uh, things like Verdi, uh, Verdi's Macbeth, as well as Bernstein's West Side Story. And uh, somebody had the glorious idea that perhaps the, the the drama workshop that I ran at university, besides the creative writing workshop, uh, would perhaps be a group that could do that. And so we ended up uh, having this combination of snippets from Shakespeare plays linked to the songs that the, 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 the choir was doing. They were doing uh, something about um, slavery in... Um, in Brazil. And we sort of started talking about what one could do. And I mentioned that there were a few uh, American songs that were quite interesting. And uh, so we ended up putting this thing together, which is essentially a a program of music uh, from the States, uh, from Africa, and from, uh, uh, from Brazil. And we thought that the formula had really worked well, where you had text uh, combined uh, with and relevant to the songs. And so that's uh, r- what, what this turned out to be is called Journeys of Slavery. There's a, a former student of mine uh, who is uh, Ghanaian Swiss, uh, and she's reading the things that are relevant for uh, people of colour. And I'm, I'm the baddie. I basically read the, the white man's bit. 
We're sort of bringing in uh, also a number of songs of our own. Uh, Mansa is doing um, Strange Fruit, the um, Abel Mirapol song uh, made famous by Nina Simone and earlier by Billie Holiday. And I'm doing uh, uh, part of a, a broadside ballad called The Flying Cloud, which describes uh, a, a slaving voyage in actually surprisingly sympathetic um, tone uh, from the point of view of the, this sailor watching what was happening on this slaving ship. Which is combined with a with an excerpt from an autobiography of a man called Bakwakwa, who was who describes his uh, view of the slaving ship from the point of view of one of the people who is incarcerated in the hold. Um, and then we have Robert Burns's "The Slave's Lament," which is a really interesting piece of music, given the fact that he was a <laughs> He was a Scot, an 18th century Scot, a white man, uh, had never really left Scotland. He was he was negotiating a, a position in on a plantation in the Caribbean, but never actually took it. But then sort of, you know, writing from from uh, the perspective, the, the slaves lament writing from the perspective of somebody who's captured in Senegal and, and transferred to Virginia. It's a really moving piece of music. Well, of course, it is really important for anyone writing a song to be able to put themselves into into the shoes of a, another person, see the world through someone else's eyes. But it does strike me that there is a bit of a cognitive dissonance going on if you are writing a song about being a slave and, and being sympathetic to that point of view and then wanting to go and work on a plantation. It seems a bit odd to me. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, he, 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 he spent most of his time sort of, you know, chasing a few bob and i think that sort of was was uh, probably economically motivated well of course it wasn't just a few bob he was chasing as it was also a lot of ladies as well indeed yeah yeah i mean that's that was a, a, an interesting debate that uh, i i had with some people and i must admit i'm i'm very uncomfortable about it in many ways because uh, so many of his relationships, of course, were with servant girls. So there was that disparity, uh, that th there was this power differential between man and women at the time anyway, but actually man and servant girl on the other. Mm -hmm. And I, I can see where some of the Scottish women poets come from when they say, well, you know, this, this has Weinsteinian overtones. But on the other hand, I also feel that he had a genuine, he seemed to have a genuine affection uh, for women. And he, okay, he probably, he, he was patriarchal, of course, but his poem, The Rights of Women, is actually, is actually really, you know, supportive of that that women must be women must be protected and women must be looked after and okay that's the patriarchal bit but it wasn't a question of of uh, you know women are secondhand citizens or anything like that and of course he was also so incredibly instrumental in in the in collecting scottish folk songs yeah. you know uh, hey Cthulhu, for instance is uh, is is 
it's unclear whether he wrote it or he collected it from Fisher, you know, from fishing folk in Fife. He was so incredibly good at imitating the folky idiom that it is essentially impossible to tell in the ballads that he collected where he amended bits that didn't work. So, yeah, he he was a, an immensely impressive and very, very interesting character. Flawed, I agree, but um, also uh, capable of writing unbelievably beautiful love poetry. Up with the calls are dies up, and the lads are cavin and the kimmers are largo, and the lasses are leaving. Hey, Cathroo, Cathroo, for we, hey, Muckaladoo. Hey, Cathroo, Cathroo, for we, hey, Muckaladoo. We hae tales to tell, and we hae songs to sing, and we hae pennies to spend, and we hae pines to bring. Hey, Cathroo, Cathroo, for we hae muckaladoo. Hey, Cathroo, Cathroo, for we hae muckaladoo. We'll live all our days, and then that comes behind. Let them do the like, and spend the gear they win. Hey, Cathroo, Cathroo, for we hae muckaladoo. Hey, Cathroo, Cathroo, for we hae muckaladoo. So at this point, I'd like to say we do have listeners from all over the world to this podcast. And at this point, I really do want to say hello to everyone who listens. I can't tell you just how much I appreciate it. Do drop me a little line on Twitter or Facebook just to tell me where you're listening from, um, because I know we have people from six continents and I think that's absolutely amazing. Let me know what you like about the show or what you would like to see uh, instead. Um, so, but just... Mainly, thank you so much for your support. Um, but what that also means, Franz, is that there are going to be people near to you, where you're based who might want to come and see one of your shows. So whereabouts can they find you? Well, at the moment, it's mainly it's mainly uh, around the bigger Swiss towns. Mm-hmm. But we do hope that when the album comes out that uh, we might sort of, you know, travel a little bit further abroad. Uh, we would like to, uh, you know, do some shows in Germany, possibly in France, because that's not very far away. Austria is also a possibility, Italy. Um, but at the moment, it's mainly, it's mainly the Bernese area. So, but as I said, this is, that's really at the moment. And if people want to book you, they can get in touch. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We do have a website. Uh, which at the moment is a little bit bare because we're, uh, you know, we're still, uh, we had a couple of gigs uh, over the last two years, uh, largely because, you know, as for everybody, um, live music sort of disappeared. Um, so uh, our website is, is relatively new, uh, but it would actually contain, um, it would actually contain information about the album once it comes out and uh, it would obviously also uh, have contact details and tour dates and tell us, tell people a little bit about Stephen Farron, Mo Brandley and myself. And the address is uh, taradiddle.ch. That's great. Thank you, friends. And we will put that in the show notes as we usually do. Well, we're coming to the end of the show now. Thank you so much, friends, for being a guest today. And thank you to you all for listening. Do subscribe to us on Apple or Google or anywhere that you get your podcasts from, and then you'll never miss an episode. We'll be back soon with more stories and songs. But in the meantime, here is Franz Andres Morrissey to play us out with Brown Adam.
Oh, who would wish the winds to blow and the leaves to fall their way? And who would wish a better love than brown Adam the Smith? His hammer is of the beaten gold. His study of the steel His fingers white A mighty light He blows his bellows well But they banished him brown father and from mother they banished him brown Adam from sister and from brother oh they have banished him brown Adam from the flower of all his kin but he's built a bower in good green wood between his lady and him as it fell out upon a day brown Adam he thought long that he would too some venison His tain, his bow all o'er his arm His sword on to his hand And he is to the green wood gone As fast as he could gang shot up and he's shot down a bird upon the briar and he sent it home to his lady bade her be of good cheer then he's shot up and he's shot down bird upon the thorn and he sent it home to his lady that he'd be home the morn when he came to his lady's bower he stood a little forby there he heard a full false knight attempting his lady gay. Is taken out a gay gold ring, 
had cost him many a pound. Oh, grant me love for love, lady, and this shall be your own. I love Brown Adam, well, she says, I know that he does me. I would not give Brown Adam's love for no false night I see. He's taken out a purse of gold, was full right to the string. Grant me love for love, lady, and this shall. I know that he does me And I would not be your likely man For more than you'd give me Then he has drawn his long, long sword And he's flashed it to and fro Now grant me love Fingers from his right hand 